Hello and welcome to Wimlex Podcast, episode number 44. Today our guest is Bay McLaughlin, a global venture capitalist who founded Brink. I'm Alexander Graf, founder and co-CEO of Spriker System. Bay is a friend of mine and he is also part of the ICE organization, um, a global organization with, with young entrepreneurs sharing their stories. And today Bay is sharing his story in the podcast because he has has founded a very very interesting early stage venture accelerator um, saying from himself that he invests only in game-changing entrepreneurs from around the world focusing on solving real problems so what does it mean no no software problems but usually hardware problems um, so uh, the setting for this podcast is kind of special it's done it's a zoom call um, and there's a couple of other members from ICE in the Zoom call, though they are not asking questions during the podcast, but they are using the Zoom chat. So whenever I'm referring to the chat as part of the Zoom window, um, Bra Bay has very, very inspiring, um, uh, a very inspiring learning curve. And I really appreciate that he wanted to share also his learnings uh, with the Wimlex listeners. So have fun with Bay. And whenever you have a question, reach out to him directly to, at brink.io. Um, Bay, welcome to uh, the ICE slash Wimlex show uh, today. Uh, we're going to talk about uh, global venture capitalism. Um, and uh, there will be uh, lots of topics we talk about when it comes to building new startups. Uh, you're a very experienced founder and venture capitalist. Um, please introduce yourself to the audience, not only in this call here, but especially for the Wimlex listeners, uh, where most of them don't know you yet. Always, always promoting the podcast. I love it. So, yep. Thanks so much, uh, Alex. Really appreciate you doing this. My name is Bay McLaughlin. I'm one of the co-founders and the COO of a company called Brink. We started this early stage venture capital firm back in 2014 after I spent my first 10 years in Silicon Valley you know, working for Apple, supporting young startups, and really had an exciting kind of opportunity to move to Asia, my wife, and decided to build this company focusing on at the first physical entrepreneurs realizing there's a gap in the market and venture capital to support people utilizing physical solutions to solving some of the world's problems, not just pure software, which is, you know, taking over the world as we all know. And that's obviously expanded now. Um, after about six and a half years in business, we're now, you know, 65 people, 11 accelerators around the world, 35 million under management, 140 portfolio companies, et cetera. Okay, we'll dive into this uh, um, in a minute. Maybe um, uh, one question before. I saw on your LinkedIn profile um, that you have like um, almost 30,000 followers. Like from a German LinkedIn perspective, that would, uh, uh, that would make you one of the most influential persons on uh, male, male investors in, in the German LinkedIn. Is it kind of influential for, for your business still? Or do, do you create a lot of buzz through LinkedIn? Well, I didn't know there was actually a limit. I hit that this year, so I can no longer have new contacts on LinkedIn. I didn't know that that was possible. Um, so, that but you can you can add new followers, right? Right, but we we had to. My team and I had to start going and, and getting rid of contacts. Um, but it was, I mean, the story behind all this was, I mean, LinkedIn in particular is a platform. I jumped on super early. You know, I think it was my undergrad or master's program. So I don't know why I thought it was important when I was that young, but I got on it really early on. 
And then it wasn't really until I think the second year at Brink where I recognized that it was very hard for us as an early stage investor, especially being in Asia, where there, it was definitely not the epicenter you know, for the, the rest of the Western world, unless you were doing a China for China strategy, which we were not when we first started. So I really hit the ground and said, okay, I just had an instinct that it would be easier to tell a story through a personal lens than try to build a brand first, because we weren't experts in doing that. And it, was, and it was true, at least. I mean, for me, I was able to build my personal brand very fast. And by doing that, I was becoming the, the first kind of biggest deal flow pipeline for the business. So that was one of those kind of aha moments. Um, and I've learned a lot since then. But after, I would argue, two and a half, three years of doing that, um, you know, anyone on this would know if you're into social media, it's an unbelievable grind. I mean, the work, it, it never stops, you know, creating content, having to do speaking. I actually was kind of laughing a little bit thinking, Oh crap, Alex is going to really grill me because I used to do probably, you know, one or two interviews a week and I haven't done one of these in forever. So I'm like, I'm going to be stumbling over the stories and making mistakes that I'm not used to making because I haven't been doing this in a long time. But after my, uh, my first child, my daughter was born about 19 months ago, I took one photo, I put it on Instagram at the hospital the day she was born and then I got off. So I haven't been on social media since. Um, anything that you see is my team, not me anymore. And it's mainly focused now on just supporting kind of announcements and things that we're doing for the business in our portfolio, but no longer doing, you know, any personal brand building. Okay. Then let's focus a little bit on Brink um, uh, because uh, um, I definitely understand that you now learned to um, to pitch Brink like in within like two sentences, but uh, there's a little bit more behind it. Uh, like in the two sentences, he said something about like uh, 35 million on management, um, 11 incubators and some other stuff. So maybe... It's licensed here. So, um, so, what is an incubator in this Brink infrastructure? So, good. We're already off to not using the same words. So, we're accelerator programs, okay. not incubator programs. Uh, I made I, I made a joke a long time ago in my office in Apple that we used to call, start calling these accelerators because, like, what the hell is an incubator or an accelerator anymore? I mean, who even knows what seed or Series A is? And so. It was, I mean, we really think about it as the team has to be at a moment in time where they, like, they are going to commercialize in a short-term period of time. You know, let's say 12, 18 months. We're not doing early stage, pure idea, you know, ideas or deep R&D that's going to take a long time or doesn't have a kind of a clear path to market. So um, that, that means from a technology perspective, you know, we are happy to invest in, like we just did an investment working on mining and space but we know that the technologies exist today. So it is going to take us three years to get there, but the technologies are already available. So that's not the limiting factor. So we do build accelerator programs. We started out by owning and operating them at first. And again, started out focusing on physical innovation just because we had a personal kind of, you know, vendetta or stick it, you know, and internally that, yeah, we love software. We understand that, but the majority of humanity's problems are not purely digital. And so we wanted to start investing in this and there was, you know, not many people doing it. And also it's been an uphill battle ever since. Um, we've since been able to expand the focus from purely, you know, sensors, IOT, drones, robotics to additional verticals. So now we invest heavily in food acceleration. Um, so that could be cellular agriculture, uh, food supply, you know, dealing with, you know, waste products in the food system. We now open up into clean tech, where we also do some software. We just opened logistics tech, uh, this particular cohort, cohort, which is a lot more software oriented than we're used to. So still, you know, heavily 
interested and invested in being directly or maybe one degree disconnected from the physical aspects of solving problems in the world. Uh, obviously, everything is software, but not investing in you know pure software for software where there's no real you know physical element. Okay, then turn it around and lo look at your accelerator program from a customer perspective. So what is a customer journey? Let's say here from this call, Alejandro and I do have an idea that fits uh, for one of your programs. So how, how do we get in touch? How do you invest? Who is actually investing? So we started out doing our own money for the first three years and we raised some friends and family. And then it, I mean, it took a long time, honestly, just we were, we were trying to convince people that investing in physical you know, technology could be done at lower prices than anyone had like historically believed that you could, which we were able to prove, especially with our supply chain experience in-house. So we were able to really decrease the cost of those early stage investments. But even we underestimated, you know, it was more than we obviously thought it would be, not by you know, a factor, but it was, it was more than it should have been. And so we realized we have had to raise capital. So we are fortunate enough to have a great LP out of Australia called Artesian Capital. So they've been one of our largest LPs. But we've also had LPs in governments. We've had through the, like one of ours is in Poland and Poznan. So we have the Polish government as our LP there. We also have uh, corporations. So in the Middle East and Bahrain, we have a group called Temkin uh, in Patelco. So one's a public-private partnership. One is the, the largest telco in the country. In Australia, we have the same LP. In India, we have the government. So we're very confident in, in, us, um, in Hong Kong. We also did one with Schneider Electric. Um, so they're a huge you know, electric um, clean energy company. So ultimately, we've kind of learned how to utilize capital from a variety of sources. Um, and we're now in the middle of raising our first global fund, which will invest in our own operated accelerators as well as other accelerators. And then also specific deal by deal uh, kind of series, series seed, series A deals, um, but we want to you know, commit the majority of that to follow on. But the, the team's journey, really, they apply now. It, it, we now don't really have to hunt like we used to. You know, I used to get on the road and I would travel 180, 190 days a year. And I would go out to all these cities, like I was doing about 15 to 20 countries a year and finding these teams and meeting with other programs and other investors and going to conferences and all that. But once the brand kind of tipped over, you know, now we receive applications organically from 95 countries around the world, and we're receiving about 1,000 apps per cohort. So it's really kind of tipped over now. So we don't have to do the kind of same hardcore groundwork that we started out doing. I'd like to go back to, to, to my initial question. So Alejandro and I are now having an idea, in, let's say, in Australia, because you have an, uh, you have an accelerator program um, there. How, how do we get in, in contact? Is it like via uh, Brinkdown on the website? Do we, have to, do we have to apply? Yep, so you apply, correct. So everyone, that's one thing we've learned also, is that having people kind of come through the side door, or the back door actually messes up the entire system. So you can talk to anyone you want in the company, but if you don't apply, you're not considered. So we have a waiting list. So when applications are not open, and then you go apply through our F6S portal. So F6S is like an online platform for startups to list their businesses and apply for various grants or contests or sell out open. And then it goes through a due diligence process. After the due diligence process, you get, invest, you get invited to what we call a ramp up. And ramp up is this really kind of further extended due diligence that allows the startup and us to get to know each other better. So it's no commitment, you know, from equity on either side. So it's a, you know, two to three week 
process where we ask the teams to utilize some of our early kind of content. So we help them, you know, give them financial models that they may not have. We have them do some market analysis they may not have done, some technical analysis they may not have done. And then we do our formal investment committee and memo reviews, which we're actually in the middle of right now for the next cohort. Once they've done that, they get invited to the program. And then most programs have two tranches. So they get the first money at the beginning. And then as long as they complete the programs, they get the rest. It's not contingent on any sort of metrics. It's just making sure that teams don't blow up and take the rest of the cash, which does happen sometimes. Uh, so you avoid and kind of keep a little bit more of that money in case that does happen. Okay. In this specific case, Alexander and I uh, would have an eye idea around like let's say price comparison stuff yeah that's what that's uh, what we really know uh, about and let's say uh, this this kind of um, uh, applies for for your program so how much money would we get like if entering your program do you offer them physical space like an office uh, um, or is it like rather uh, virtual well we started out being all physical in person for the whole programs we've done a bunch of iterating now and all of our programs have slight modifications depending on the requirements of that particular program but the majority of the programs you would be in person for about two months of the three to four month program and then in hong kong uh, it would only be about a month now with covid you know obviously everything's remote remote for three or five so it was in this particular situation And it's also kind of made us rethink a bunch of stuff, which we can get into you know, if people are interested later. But it's been really nice where the teams can utilize our physical spaces based on what's you know, necessary for them. So a team that goes through our Hong Kong program, because let's say they care about supply chain support, but they actually have you know, a product that might be applicable in the Middle East, then we can actually move them between those locations because we have six offices now. So it allows them to have you know, a footprint in Europe and India and the Middle East and Australia and South Asia, you know, or, or Southeast Asia and China. So it gives them that flexibility. Um, it'll be interesting to see what happens, you know, post COVID because right now we've really left it up to the founders, you know, Hey, use our space when you want to let us know kind of thing. But usually it was like two months of the year was sort of that moment in Hong Kong where all the founders were in person, you know, Poland does two months, Bahrain does two months. And then the teams get anywhere between 50 to a hundred thousand us for the investment. Um, we charge a uh, program fee so that that's how we keep the lights on for the programs. So the net you know, amount that goes to the team is less, usually 20 to 30K for the fee. Um, and we have one uh, equity-free program in Poland. So the teams actually get you know, the money and the program without giving any equity up. So that's usually- Okay, 100K. Uh, and how much, how much equity do you, do you get from our super interesting price comparison idea? It's, it's a range. So on the low end, it'd be sort of three to 5% on the higher valuation companies. And on the high end and the lower valuation companies, it'd be between like seven and 12% depending. Okay, got it. So, so I, I understand, I understand like the how these accelerator structure works. And then you participate usually in uh, later rounds too with, with, an, uh, with, a, with a global fund or with some external money. So when there's like new money getting into those companies, the more successful ones, uh, are so you able to participate? First, and that's something that we learned. And so we made a great deal with our LPs in Artesian for about half our programs where we have a guaranteed follow-on clause. So that means that if the teams after our programs raise from three external uh, professional investors, it doesn't have to be a named investor, just someone who's a professional investor, like it's not your parents on the cap table mm -hmm. or something then we'll guarantee that they'll follow on, which is fantastic. Uh, but we have realized, and that's why we're raising the follow-on fund, that there is one more check that is really, really a gap right now in our particular verticals and areas geographically that we need to be able and ready to follow on. 
And then beyond that, once you get to a Series A round, like it, it's a lot, it opens up again. So that to other investors and the other programs, we don't have a guaranteed follow-on check, which is you know unfortunate, right? Like you know, if we had been able to raise the fund prior, we definitely would have been taking more shots. Okay, and uh, uh, we will we will look into the USPs um, uh, uh, in a minute. Um, but um, just to understand, like uh, where, how your business model works, so. You have to make sure that you're um, that you have like a, a very very liquid liquid pipeline. So lots of people know your brand and apply to your uh, apply for your programs. Um, then you have to make sure that during the due diligence uh, um, phase, you select like the startups or businesses with um, uh, with the best chances uh, to uh, uh, to win. Um, and uh, then you have to make sure that within Selecting those startups that you get a decent share uh, for the money invested, and um, then there's an exit from the startup, or yep. does the return come rather through secondaries? Um, yeah, I have a lot of respect for you know VCs and people trying to pick Series A and beyond. You know, that's a that's a very different game than what we're in. And and how do you um, how do you scale those accelerator programs? work so do you have to find like an accelerator team there do you just provide software so like a third kind of a franchise uh business and how does it work no so we, we've really expanded organically thus far so we've had you know a couple of our employees or, or team members decide to move around the world so that's been one way we've done it and then now because we have 11 programs in six countries we do have a model so we've actually been able to figure out ways to work with partners and say, hey, I see a shot in clean tech in this location or food tech in that location. And so we've been able to empower them. We still end up you know, owning and operating there, but we would give those people on ground that help open those doors or have a passion for that vertical or whatever, have a, a piece of that game. So it's not a franchise in the pure sense of that word, but there's elements you know, that we're now starting to realize at our scale that could work like that. And, and our aspirations are not to own and operate every single possibility, you know, out there, every single program. We actually have another whole business we've built called the Accelerator of Accelerators or AOA, which we've been testing in China. So we actually have five programs in China. So if you add those together, it'd look like we have 16. But those five programs, we don't own and operate. We either invest in and then govern and empower or we train them. So we get smaller percentages of the equity, but we get way higher volume. So it gives us a bigger kind of visibility to a country the size and scale of China, where, you know, in, in our opinion, it's just more challenging for us, you know, even though we have a local team in China as foreigners to go in and do as well as we do in other countries. So it's been a way for us to explore a different model where, hey, you know, we might, may not be experts in this particular vertical or this might be a tough geography. Why don't we partner and utilize our, you know, know-how, our systems, our process, our brand to help them and then take a smaller percentage per team, but at a much higher volume deals. Okay, got it. So um, maybe let's stick with the uh, food idea. So because I read yeah. an article, I think yesterday, and there are a couple of Dutch people here, that uh, uh, the Netherlands is like the Silicon Valley when it comes to uh, food innovations. Um, the food mm -hmm. industry is, is pretty strong there. That uh, from like a, my naive perspective uh, uh, would lead me to the uh, to, to the idea of co why not to set up an accelerator in the food industry in in uh, in Netherlands, uh, um, so uh, would that work for you? So, it's, or is it like way too competitive already in this industry there? Well, we're actually really strong in food, so I would 
I wouldn't think so. Uh, I've never even heard of it. So, you know, good to good to know that it's a good opportunity. Um, we're currently not looking at it. So if anyone in Isaac knows someone that would want to do that, we'd love to work on building a food program there. Uh, Willem, nice. Let's do it. Um, no, so, I mean, it's very easy. You know, really, it's more about you have to find two or three different components to the system and then it can work. So you need usually a vertical. Uh, corporate is a great partner. You can use the government if you need to. But someone in that area that says, you know, I want to invest in deeper technologies in food, or I want to do commercialization and bring in, you know, alternative proteins into this region, or I want to grow teams locally. And that, that's also totally possible, but usually most countries don't have enough volume and deal flow to do that, you know, at any scale that, that we like to do. So um, once you have that, then you need the investors that can be the same group. Usually it wouldn't be, usually it'd be a VC or it'd be uh, an LP. And we try to match those up. Um, and in future state, you know, when our fund comes online, then we would probably just make the call ourselves. You know, we would we would just go in and decide, okay, either we can own and operate this, we'll hire the team and then train them, or we'll find a, a local, you know, program that's already going well and we'll be LPs and then maybe add in some support there, you know, as as a larger brand. Yeah, I think based on square meters, uh, the Netherlands is one of the uh, uh, biggest uh, export nations when it comes to meat and tomatoes and all this stuff. So it's 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 really a very innovative country around uh, around food. And uh, the Meatable founders, um, I think that's from the same university Willem comes from, was also in the podcast uh, already. So that might be an op uh, opportunity here. Awesome. Uh, okay, so I understand so where you're coming from and how do you how you're doing it. Um, so let's uh, let's uh, let's take some minutes to look into the competition. So. And, and whose problem you're actually solving. So um, if I were thinking about like my market here, local market, so in, so I'm, I'm living uh, outside from Hamburg. It's, um, it's, uh, uh, it, it's kind of a boring kind of farm area here. If anybody would start like an accelerator program, I think that would uh, create some attention most definitely because there's no, uh, no strong uh, investor community here. Uh, Alex, so, sorry, my, my internet was unstable there. Can you repeat the question? So um, if, 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 I, if, if we look into like the competition landscape for accelerators or, uh, um, or in, in general for such programs, uh, we see a lot of su such programs um, driven by the government here in Germany, for example, mm -hmm. but there's very little professional investors uh, um, doing, doing this. So um, can you describe your competitive landscape? So who, who you're competing against, actually? Sure. So we're very much like tech stars in terms of how big they are and how global they are. Uh, and 500 startups are probably the other two, like the two that are as global with the kind of scale. So, you know, the, the competitive landscape in accelerators, I think has changed quite a bit because we're actually seeing that a huge percent, like I, I would actually argue the majority of our teams now that we invest in go through more than one accelerator, which is not the case. They're not the way it used to be. So for the last, let's say all the not, you know, early 2000s, like 20 to 2010, there, there was, you know, usually one accelerator max. And there was, you know, even some sort of confusion sometimes in the investment community about that. Um, now it's unbelievably common and, and sort of becoming, you know, actually kind of infrequent where a team will come in having not gone through either a no equity program locally, regionally, you know, with the government backing or some sort of, you know, corporate or, you know, some sort of I don't know, you have so many groups like Mass Challenge or other groups that are non-equity programs, um, but it's still very common for a team to go through us and then go to a Techstars or go through uh, Techstars or Alchemist and then go to us. So um, I think the landscape, while competitive, I've actually been really happy to see how it's evolved. And now we actually work really well together. So I regularly send deals 
to other accelerators that have either a different vertical or geographic focus than we do and vice versa, which is really helpful for everyone. From, there's an interesting question here in, in our Zoom group chat. Uh, um, because you've seen so many countries and running so, so many different programs, um, and there's a question from uh, Alina. What country do you think is a hidden champion in the startup game? So exceptional talent or startup infrastructure. So if, 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 I, had, if I had like one, uh, one try, I would say it's, it's most probably India or China, something like that, uh, super underleveraged countries, which like big potential, but you've seen so much more. So uh, what was your biggest surprise uh, um, so far? I think it's a complicated question because there's so many that don't get the, the kind of narrative in the media or the attention. So if I was going to say purely underrated, just from like doesn't get any attention, I would still think it's Canada. I think Canada has an unbelievable heritage of, you know, tech talent, venture cap, not venture capital in the way that we're used to it, but let's just say like, you know, capital investing through the private markets and private companies and entrepreneurship. Um, obviously, everyone would have heard of Israel, even though it's small. Um, you know, it's a powerhouse from an engineering and founder perspective. Um, And, and honestly, we just opened in Australia. I have to say, I'm, I'm so impressed with the deal flow we're getting in Australia. And I, I don't know if I was underestimating that, but at least in our vertical right now in clean tech, the, the caliber of the companies that are applying is incredible. So, I mean, I, I think it, it would have to get a couple more filters there, Lena, in terms of, is it that they're not covered? Is it that there's a bunch of money you haven't heard of. Is it that, you know, sheer dominance by size like China or India? Um, there's a, it's, it's probably a more complicated question. So happy to go deeper if you want to. Okay. But, um, but in, in from, um, but is there like one location where you started uh, such accelerator program where you were super surprised uh, for about like the sheer volume uh, for uh, applications, for example? Oh, India, for sure. Unbelievable. Like we, we actually opened up India because we were investing in so many Indian companies through Hong Kong that is becoming super inefficient. So like this is, we, at one point it was like 40% of our deals in one cohort were all from India. We're like, this is crazy. This makes no more sense. Like no sense. We might as well just go open in India. And can, can, and can you give us some like insights, what kind of applications you're receiving in India? Because if you're looking at uh, Euro, the European startup ecosystem, for example, uh, and most of, uh, most of the um, listeners here right now in this Zoom call are from Europe, uh, uh, um, uh, um, um, but the most stuff we are seeing is like, it's, it's all the same. You, you know, right now we are in the app ecosystem. So uh, 60% of whatever I see, it's, it's around an app solving like a very, very basic problem or a, stu a, a stupid problem. So if there was an India, if there's, if there's an Indian startup team, so what is the standard stuff they are coming up with? What are they applying for? Big trends, um, agri-tech or agri-food tech. So the future of the food supply there is a big one. And mobility are the two that I would say right off the top of my head. And I think that makes sense for the challenges that the economy is going through there. So, I mean, there are others, but certainly like those are those are the two biggest trends we've been seeing. And also what we've been investing in. We have we have some in clean tech and solar, but the, the majority I'd say is agri-food tech and, and mobility. And how does an agri-food tech idea in India look like? Can you give me like your top sure. three? 
So precision agriculture is pretty common. So trying to figure out how to help farmers grow crops, you know, with less waste, more yield, uh, lower capital expense. Um, also supply chain, uh, when it comes, we don't see this often in other supply chains, but we see it very often in agri-food, meaning there seems to be a massive, um, I don't know what to say this in a nice way. Like it actually could be quite aggressive in a, in, a, in a negative way. So the people that grow the food in India, you know, obviously as, as a developing country, um, it's a massively important resource. And so there is a huge network of middlemen that mark things up aggressively and they have essentially a stranglehold on the food supply. And so we have a couple of teams that are working in this space and, and we actually have to talk and, and be open with them saying, you know, People that start challenging this middleman infrastructure and the food supply in India, they disappear. And so it's something we have to be open saying your whole business model is essentially going head to head with a very aggressive middleman market that is essentially the wild west. Like, are you comfortable doing this? And they are because they know that's important because people are not getting the food they need at the price that they, that's reasonable and it's hurting the country really, really massively. So, um, that, that's, that's one that we see or, you know, supply chain, precision agriculture. Um, and there is some cool sort of FinTech elements to this where they're trying to support the micro loans through, you know, private lenders or banks to support helping these, uh, farmers grow. Cause unfortunately they're having probably similar to most developing countries or developed countries. They're seeing that the vast majority of family owned farms and businesses that the next generation don't want to do it. So, you know, there's a huge drop off in the amount of people that they actually need to grow the food for the country. And how do you manage then the due diligence? So if I was thinking about my investors in Spryker, like B2B software, so they are like super specialized, so like they know everything about this uh, this stuff. So um, none of them would be eligible for uh, doing a due diligence on, on agriculture startup in India. So how, do you, how do you make sure that uh, you're selecting the right stuff in areas that are like super remote? So I guess you never sat on a tractor Uh, thinking about how to how to manage yeah, <laughs> efficient uh, efficient uh, uh, crop management or so. So how do you do it? No, I think there's a couple elements there. So certainly in the early stage of, of when you're investing in pre-revenue, you know, sometimes even, you know, not pre-prototype, but let's say prototype level businesses, you're betting on the people. So we obviously aren't going to be betting on something we completely have no concept of whatsoever. That's one thing that we tend not to do, but we do know a lot having invested in hardware over the years. Like we understand the technology of these types of businesses. Um, and then on the other side is remoteness. So we get like last cohort, the third largest country by volume is Nigeria. And that really surprised us because we've never sourced actively from Nigeria. I've never been to Nigeria. Um, and I think it was just, you know, our name got thrown around somehow and the market's tight. And so we got a huge influx and I feel badly because man, there's some great ideas in parts of Africa that we just haven't felt comfortable investing in again, because what you said, like, it's just one step out of our level of confidence, right? Like our ability to support that. Whereas pretty much anywhere in, you know, the middle East, you know, we did a deal in Lebanon that didn't work out for us. Um, I wouldn't even be totally confident in South Africa right now, you know, because we know so little about it, but we've invested pretty much everywhere else in the world. So I'd, I'd argue that in early stage investing, you're not going to be an expert in everything. So you're trusting the founders and secondarily, um, you know, we probably a little bit more aggressive in terms of geographies and most, but then by doing so we've learned, right. We would never have known to open up an India program so rapidly had we not seen such amazing deal flow and worked with so many great founders. So from, from, from what I sense so far, though, it feels like so 50% of the business is like 
it, it purely follows like capitalism uh, uh, um, uh, um, um, theory and 50% is following like helping the world. So what is your ultimate goal with, uh, with creating this program? Yeah, we, we've, we didn't know this about, you know, us as even co-founders at first until we've been investing for a couple of years. Um, one of our creative hires about three and a half, four years ago kind of looked at our portfolio and, and rec helped us recognize that, you know, we didn't have LPs formally. So we were investing our own money in friends and family. And so we just looked at our portfolio and recognized, you know, you guys really have this kind of deep thematic focus on really important problems. And so we had to research, we had a feeling, but we didn't know. And thank goodness, uh, I think we all know or have been seeing that the trends are changing and that people are investing their money differently now, even buying goods that are, have a little bit more of a you know, good impact in the world. So our whole theory is that we're going to continue to manage balancing profit with purpose and that we already are following a lot of the ESG investment principles. Um, we get stronger on those every single time. And we do focus on the SDGs very often. We actually ask in our investment committee memos, which SDGs are you working on? So our teams to get our money have to actually explain to us how they're working on the sustainable development goals for the world. And you know that, that precludes us from making certain bets, obviously. But um, I don't know, like all the research tells us and all, our, all the work we've done with our founders tells us these are not mutually exclusive and that, yeah, sure, there's still going to be people that are willing to go rape and pillage the world, you know, or essentially fuck the world over and, you know, just for the sake of money. But I think it's becoming less and less, you know? And, and so I think it's actually, um, I don't know, I, we're very happy with the caliber and the type of people that we like cultivate and bring into our orbit in terms of the investors, in terms of our founders. Um, and we'll have to see it play out, but it looks like all the winds are, are kind of favorable for us in the next five to 10 year horizon. So yeah, balancing uh, profit and purpose. It uh, sounds like a very good book title. So um, uh, maybe 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 you can can you can write about uh, that, uh, that later. So one of my last questions um, uh, uh, would be: So what is limiting your growth? So is it is it money? Is it access to um, uh, talent? Um, can you can you grow all of uh, the um, the program? New sub programs. So some successful startups say, okay, the business idea wasn't that good, but this accelerator thing that that seems to be quite cool let's start a new accelerator so how, how do you do it so how can you grow even faster yeah the, the fund is is ultimately going to unlock that for sure and you know we're we're in talks you know which i can't talk so much about now for some interesting acquisitions of other accelerators and realizing there's lots of ways to grow that are not you know you have to make every single little bet like bet yourself one by one and that's you know what we bet on with the accelerator of accelerators uh business that we built in china But I, I think it is money uh, and it's not crazy amounts of money, but you know, our people, I have to give my team so much credit. I mean, we just like, I'm sure all of your staff, I mean, our team just kills themselves and, and we really do, you know, operate in a Western way, but at a China pace. And so the speed at which we grow and we can operate is pretty incredible. And so I don't think it's our internal abilities i really do think it is that capital so we're we're we've been pretty super serious about raising this fund because i think it's going to be an absolute game changer for us and my last question here for the podcast round uh before we open uh, for the whole, whole zoom chat group to ask more questions is um how did your business change due to um COVID? so did it slow down or can you keep up the pace so we did we didn't i have to say that i think we're a little optimistic Like we had major growth goals this year, you know, going into this. And I think we thought for some reason 
we could kind of thread the needle. Um, so probably a little overly ambitious, but we definitely kept you know decent pace. We made about eighty percent of the investments we thought we were going to. You know, so far this year, we had to decrease the check size in Hong Kong from one hundred to eighty k. Um, but overall, you know, I feel like it's only made us better. You know, knock on wood for everyone that you know on the call that it's it's helped your businesses. I mean, I think even as a small business, you know, 65 staff, um, you know, or maybe medium business, um, we, we started having a little kind of, you know, fat around the edges, right? You know, I think it's actually been good for us to kind of get lean and mean again, kind of getting back into fighting shape and getting ready for the next version of our business. You know, if this fund comes online, we're going to have to take it to a whole other place. And so, um, you know, a few less investments, a little bit less money put out the door, definitely less revenue than anticipated for the year, but we've been able to maintain all of our staff, even open another office during COVID. So um, hasn't been terrible, but certainly I think there's there's been benefits for us. Thanks a lot. So uh, very interesting, super insightful, uh, very promising, um, especially the uh, balancing purpose and profit uh, thing, um, uh, um, something definitely that will... Uh, that I will introduce in, in the next Bloomberg podcast uh, um, too. Uh, thank you for the rest of the audience listening all the time. Uh, I think now we can open up uh, uh, the, the audio channels um, um, again. I hope you enjoyed the session uh, and maybe you want to take a deeper look into Brink. Uh, just click on brink.io. It's also shared in the show notes. Our next guest will be the CTO of Dell, a very interesting e-commerce business uh, with a direct-to-consumer strategy um, since the beginning. Um, our next guest commands almost 1,000 engineers and there's going to be a very, very interesting chat about um, bullshit bingo in IT. So what microservice really means for him and for the organization and how he was able to manage to build such a big organization in so many places in the world. Mm -hmm.